Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me, as always, from Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. Yeah, we're going, getting ready to go to Finland. I'm going to fly out on Wednesday. Yeah, your annual trip to uh, to Loya for the World Junior Bees, right? Yeah. So, yeah, flying out Wednesday. The boys actually fly out tomorrow. I've got to teach a little bit before I can get on the planes. I've got uh, two more classes to teach Monday, Tuesday, then fly out Wednesday afternoon. And then, how long will you be in Loya, and how how are the how are the guy, how are the guys going to do this time around? Uh, well, try to get back to the playoffs and then win two more games is the goal. So they got quarterfinals last year. Um, you know, they've been playing hard this year, playing a pretty competitive schedule. So hoping that'll pay dividends. Uh, but step one is to get back to the playoffs. So they're in a group of eight. So probably got to go five and two uh, to grab a playoff spot. And then once you're in the playoffs, anything can happen. Anybody tough in your in your pool? I know what the U.S. Uh, no, no, it's the U.S. women that are that had to move down to B this year, right? U.S. women, Scottish women, Swedish men. So a lot of traditional curling powers have fallen down to the B pool. Um, they're they're not in our pool, and I don't know who's in our pool because we just got an email uh, this afternoon saying a couple teams have dro- dropped out, so there might be a reshuffle. So. So we don't know yet, but we'll see. So, yeah. All your scouting goes out the window. Yeah, the, the English curling scouting budget. Yeah, it's yeah. we've had uh, scouts all around the world for, for months, Ryan. Well, uh, we have a guest today that, um, that might need to talk to you about location scouting there in Loya because she is heading there next month. She is the skip of the Mexican national women's team, uh, and they will be heading to Loya, Finland for the 2020 World Qualification event after finishing second at the America's Challenge in Eveleth, Minnesota. So we want to bring on her. Uh, this is Adriana Camarena, and she is a curler at the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club, is the skip of the women's team, and you're currently coming to us from, uh, from Arizona. Is that right? That's right. How's everybody? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, no, it's a pleasure. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about things that I love about. <laughs> love. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are, you're in Arizona right now, and it has something to do with San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club trying to get dedicated ice. Is that right? Yes. About two years ago or so, the Bay Area Curling Club identified a location uh, where we could build a curling facility in an existing warehouse. And that in itself was already a difficult uh, search. But very near the Oakland Coliseum that sports fans might know about, that's where the location of the curling club is. But then there was a lot of fundraising to do, a lot of permitting um, that needed to happen. And what we ran into trouble. Um, and so... Part of what we're doing here in Arizona is trying to fill gaps in our funding because the project has been delayed, uh, mostly because of the conditions in the Bay Area, uh, where there's a massive commercial uh, real estate 
boom, and that means that the vacancy rate is below 1%. And mm. then basically there have been ma many issues uh, around getting our funding and setting, you know, staying to our timeline. But what we're doing in Arizona now is um, having a fundraising spiel, the Calizona Dreamin' spiel, and the, <laughs> and the Coyotes Curling Club has been very generous by donating ice time so we could play down. That's awesome. So what? Um, how much money have you guys raised? How, and uh, what's how close are you guys to to being able to go dedicated? Because I know that's been the San Francisco Bay Area Club has been you know one of the more has been one of the stronger clubs, both in numbers and results at arena nationals. Um, and I know that their, their dream is to move to yet dedicated. when I talked to them last year, they thought they were really close, but um, how, how close are you guys to realizing your dream? You know, uh, now pretty close. Uh, the club originally had a budget of 1 million, which has, is probably going to end up requiring like a 1.6, 1.7 million. Um, right now, $1.33 million have been raised. So, uh, oh, wow. and there's, and now there is the, the facility is now back in construction, which was crucial for us. And so we don't, I don't want to curse it by giving an opening date, but let's just say maybe 2020, <laughs> no, 2020 right. for sure. Um, and so we're pretty close. And right now what we're looking at is, uh, some gaps to cover. Mostly it's the rent. Because what mm -hmm. happens with the delayed construction, money that was set aside for construction has gone to pay rents. Yeah, that, I mean, it's California, so rent's going to be high pretty much wherever, right? Yes, both re residential and commercial. So does that mean we will not see San Francisco Bay Area at, at this year's Arena Nationals? You know, I think they're they're about to do playdowns for uh, for arenas and pick okay. and Mopac. They're all, you know, they're the teams are still traveling, uh, okay. and still competing for those uh, spots. It's just that we have to find either practice ice in another facility or deal with our our sometimes I call it tragic ice <laughs> oh, <yeah>. mm. <laughs> in Oakland or or wherever. You know, uh, Fremont uh, with the Silicon Valley Coding Club also makes practice ice avail available to us. That's good. Uh, mm -hmm. So you got your start curling with the San Francisco Bay Area Club. Can you just kind of tell us how, how you got started in the sport and what what attracted you to it? Sure. I think like most curlers, I saw it on, on the Olympics. And I remember I started... I started wondering why I was staying up to like 3 a.m. watching the sport that I couldn't even understand. <laughs> and then I decided to try it out. I realized that they were learned to curls in the Bay Area. And I think the first one I actually did in San Jose and then realized that there was a closer club to me in Oakland or o not club, but uh, leagues in Oakland. And that's where I started playing, played a lesson series and, you know, found teammates from the lesson series. And off we, off we went, you know, throwing rocks down the streets. So how long have you been curling now? I think I'm getting close to 10 years. For sure, it's been over nine years that I've been curling. And most mostly on this, uh, on Arena Ice. I don't know. What, what kind of like sparked your competitive nature about the game? Are you just a naturally competitive person? 
I am a naturally competitive person. <laughs> People who know me will know that for sure. <laughs> but um, but yes, I think early on when I started playing curling, I immediately wanted to go to the mo- you know the five and unders, and I played with a team to for with pick. I really didn't know what I was doing really. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in Bonspiels, I always want to try to win, you know, get to Sunday or something like that. Doesn't always work out. Um, but it really was uh, a little bit over a year ago that I really understood what competitive curling um, means when the Mexican Curling Federation called uh, me and Rami Cohen up and said, well, there's a chance to go to the World Mixed Double Championship. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so then we were all in. <laughs> so the Mexican Curling Federation reached out to you. How did so were you were you involved in getting the curling federation started or and then how did they find you? Like how how did this all how did this all come to be basically? Sure. In terms of us contacting them or vice versa, I think it was a, a mixture of things. They started putting out the word that a Mexican Curling Federation had been created. And I think those of us who curl, which are mostly Mexican expats, we live in Seattle, we live in San Francisco, in Vancouver, in Toronto, uh, we started reaching out towards them also. And so eventually, uh, among the available curlers, and depending on how much experience we had, um, uh, and the events available, and Rami, uh, Cohen, and I teamed up for this first event. So it was a little bit of a back and forth to figure out what we were going to do. Um, but also, the Mexican Curl- Curling Federation has its own story, which is kind of fun. And they also, and let me tell you who they are. It's um, Rodrigo Vélez and his wife, Paula Herrera, were also watching the Olympics um, last season, and they were... Uh, watching curling and simultaneously they watched the Jamaican bobsled team movie (laughs) Mm, oh yeah (laughs) and he turns to her and says wouldn't it be funny if we brought curling to Mexico (laughs) so in this kind of like you know I've been joking for years that I'm the Mexican curling team right with it one ass (laughs) 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 and so and you know a team of one right um and so they, you know, what ended up happening is that they did the crucial thing, which is to set up the administrative side. Uh, they they registered the federation. They um, it's uh, acknowledged by the Mexican Olympic Committee and the National Sports Authority. They, you know, went back and forth with the World Curling Federation to make sure that they were acknowledged as well. And um, I don't know if you noticed, but the World Curling Federation Congress this year was in Cancun, and that was because of their efforts. They brought it to Cancun, and as you know, these conferences are usually just, you know, and you're usually in in a building somewhere in the world, and people were very happy that this year it was in Cancun. (laughs) I imagine there were no complaints from anyone in the (laughs) WCF. There was plenty of praises, I understand. (laughs) I imagine it will be going back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe it's Sao Paulo next year. We know. We, we, who knows? That's right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So, and then also right now, uh, Rodrigo is also working on um, setting up a club 
They actually have, uh, with uh, investors in Mexico, they've, they've identified uh, a hockey um, academy that has two sheets, I mean, two, two, two arenas, and they're going mm-hmm. to try to transform one of those arenas into three lanes, uh, three sheets of curling ice. And they basically have everything down there except, once again, like with the Bay Area Curling Club, they need some permitting. They need some modifications to the building. And once they get that done, there might be, you know, the first curling dedicated ice in uh, Latin America. Oh, that would be huge. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I know where I think we're Sao Paulo, the Mexican, uh, the Brazilian Federation is also trying to set up their ice. So who knows who will go first, Mexico, Brazil or the Bay Area? Wow. Yeah. Is that, so how many sheets is the Mexican one planned to be? I think it's going to be three sheets. So, so I'm already trying to talk them into a 24 hour bond spiel. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. (laughs) I I think there'd be no problem recruiting internationally for a bond spiel in Mexico. Yeah. (laughs) Especially Mexico city. I would highly recommend my hometown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how, your team came together, the women's team, and if you have any insight um, on the men's team as well, you know how how were the the four person teams put together? I imagine you all don't live in the same area, and tell us about you know getting the team together and figuring out practice times. How many times you guys have been able to to play together on the same ice leading up to the Americas Challenge, and then uh, competing in that event in Minnesota? Sure. Um, I could tell you first about the women's team. Uh, while I was practicing with Rami Cohen to, in preparation for Worlds, uh, we traveled up to Vancouver for uh, a Bonspiel. And there I was able to meet. I already knew about them. I just hadn't been able to contact them. I met um, Steffi Quintero and Angelica uh, Perez Ansures. And both of them curl out of Vancouver. They hadn't even completed a year of curling when I met them. Um, but we soon, we, we made a plan um, that we would once, you know, we would play a, a bond spiel together to see, you know, can we do this? Do we want to do this? Do we like each other? <laughs> all, all of this. And since the beginning, the, the struggle actually has been to find our fourth. And we reached out to a player who's mostly a, a league player uh, just for fun. She's mostly a golfer, uh, Agatha Sanchez, who's in Seattle. And so we played um, the inaugural Silicon Valley Curling, Club, uh, Curling Club's Bonspiel in, um, I think it was Labor Day um, in, in Fremont. And we got crushed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Which which was fine because all we wanted to figure out is like what what can what what's the level of play that our people com- you know are the four women committed, and so that happened first and we were you know we we came off size with with a good sense of that we can play together right, so the next issue is um, getting the Mexican curling curling federation to be on board with nominating us for uh, the America's Challenge which they were. But then, um, originally, the dates for the America's Challenge were the beginning of November, 8 to 10. Mm-hmm. And they got shifted to Thanksgiving week in Eveleth. Um, and this meant that Agatha Sanchez was suddenly out. She just could absolutely could not 
play that that week, that those dates because of some business and personal commitments. So suddenly we were in a scramble, right? Like <laughs> reaching out to everybody. Oh, no. I'm like uh, half driving all my Mexican American friends and their parents to get their citizenship. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> I knew who could, who could play. I'm still trying, by the way. But anyway, do you have to have citizenship to play for? Sorry, do you have to pay, have citizenship to play for the Mexican curling absolutely, association? Absolutely, or? you must have citizenship, um, or residency, which is harder. Which means you would have to be uh, somebody who already knows who, how to curl, and you're a resident in Mexico. So I actually think the citizenship path, path is easier, and I believe that's kind of like the common rule for most federations. A lot is actually ancestry. So if you can trade, if like your parents were Mexican, I mean, or whatever, like whatever the national. So in England, if your parent, if you have an English parent, you're eligible for England. You're eligible regardless for of citizenship. You... No, no, no. So in England, I was always eligible to play for England because my dad was from England. I just didn't know that till I moved here. Uh-huh. And then a friend kind of met curlings and go, "Oh, are you eligible for England?" So it, and it, it turns out like countries have very different rules. Like I think Ireland's like grandparent. <laughs> don't sell the, don't say that everybody's going to be like i'm curling for ireland <laughs> i think i think ireland would love it i think yeah. i think a lot of these like you know growth countries are um well they're exactly in your situation like if one person goes down your team you, know, you may not be able to field a team so if there's people that are eligible that can help grow the program i think that's all to the good yeah you know i will say that i've Never had so many American friends want to be Mexican, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, there's enough Mexican Americans who who <laughs> who would probably qualify, and I'm still really encouraging people. But the idea, actually, from the Mexican Curling Federation is that once they get their three sheets up, um, that they will start a youth um, youth curling program. So that in a couple of years, they'll have some really strong players coming straight out of Mexico. So Jonathan might see them at the World Junior Bs in a couple of years. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and let That'd me. That'd be awesome. And let me tell you, finish telling you the story about how we got our fourth, actually. And it's it has to do with oh, the yeah. men's, men's team. So Rami Cohen wanted, uh, wanted to be in on the men's team. He was ready. Um, uh, Ismael Abru, who actually also lives in Vancouver, and he is responsible for getting Estefi and Angelica into curling. He was also willing to play. And so now they needed um, their two other players. And through Chad McMullen uh, from Rock Solid Productions, who works very closely with the Mexican Curling Federation also, he identified two junior players in Toronto who are Canadian-Mexican. Their mom is Mexican. And so that's the men's team. It's uh, Diego and Mateo Tompkins uh, from Toronto, Ismael from Vancouver, and uh, Rami Cohen from Seattle. And when we lost our fourth, of course, we, we, we begged Monica Tompkins to play with us. <laughs> Is that their mom? Their mom has been playing oh, nice. for 20, 20 years, but she's, uh, she, as she says, she's the ladies' league player, no? So she was like, no, I don't know, I don't know. And but she it was wonderful because we didn't actually meet her face to face until we got to Evelis. And it was just like a perfect match. She's like, you know, she's invested in every rock she was playing lead. The you know, the one player who would scream the most the moment that, <laughs> that rock was out of her hand, she's like, sweep. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's been it was a lot of fun. We were all so happy that we could make it work. You just don't know, right? How's it how's it gonna go? But everybody's passionate on the team. We're all all in. Going into that to that event in Eveleth, what were your what were your expectations? Obviously, you'd only played together um, with two of your teammates once. Uh, you were getting a new teammate for for this event. What were the expectations going in, and what was, I mean, what was, what was the motivation in in going into this event? Was it mainly kind of to get publicity that there is a Mexican curling team, or was it to to see if you had what it took to qualify for the world qualification event? So I should say that I, I did um, go to Vancouver twice to um, practice and play with Steffi and Angelica. And we also, okay. uh, through their efforts, recruited coach Robbie Gallagher, who's a very experienced coach, certified Canadian coach. And he had previously helped the Brazilian women's team um, set up. So with Robbie's help, we actually did, I thought, a phenomenal job in two weekends. Like it was a day and a half. I, I keep on calling them mini camps. We did mini camps where he helped us really set up a professional team in the sense of setting correct goals, setting, um, you know, our, our processes. And since Steffi and Angie are so new to the game, they also needed to catch up on some basics even from strategy, from calls, like what, what, you know, just there's some very basic stuff, but, but they, they're fast learners and they absorbed it quickly. And then they also had other practices with Robbie that, that, um, I didn't, I just was practicing on, as I say, line and weight <laughs> on our mm -hmm. eyes. No? Um, but meanwhile, we, we set up, um, a team agreement. We did, we, I, I feel we did it all right. <laughs> and so by the time we, we got to Eveleth, we had pretty humble goals, you know, you know, <laughs> almost try to score with <laughs> at least one when we have hammer, uh, you know, this percentage of the time, you know, with Brazil or the U.S. So, like we were pretty humble about it. But what had happened is that we had had a scrimmage game against Brazil and we won that one when we were in Vancouver because the, the, the women's Brazil team is in Vancouver. And so that kind of made okay. us feel like, hell, you know, I, at least we'll, we'll, we'll be able to battle Brazil, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it turned out we battled them pretty well. <laughs> and, yeah. and we got those two games. And not only that, we were actually, since our, um, our, shot, uh, our draws to the button were really good, uh, going into our last game with the U.S., since we had an equal uh, win-loss record, we were actually the leading team just because of our... our Last shot draws. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, so had we, you know, beat, beat the U.S. In, in that game, we would have gone straight to Worlds. Woohoo! <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But I, I, I take accountability. I, I ensured that we did it in our first end when the U.S. scored six. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, no. <laughs> but anyways, that's how it goes. <laughs> What were your takeaways from from that event? What did you guys learn, and what did you learn from being on the ice with this women's team? Most, I, I, I don't think Nina Roth was with them at the time. I think she'd already gone on maternity leave. But being on the ice with a team that's played in the Olympics, like, what did you guys take away from that? Well, I, I think the takeaways are that you really those lessons that your coach is telling you about how rotation matters, how uh, of your rocks on championship buys how mm -hmm. important it is to communicate. And you see them doing it very well and very smoothly. 
um, I think it's it's more an issue of like learning how, uh, I was talking about trying to be a professional team, even if our skill level might not quite be there. It's, that's what you learn. And you and they're also charming and really gracious. So uh, once again, the spirit of curling is also something that you remember to keep with you, no matter the circumstances, right? Yeah, of course. But yeah, but also on our first game with the U.S., we were also able to score in a couple of events. So you just realize after a while that you just have to, you have to follow your routine as an individual player and you have to follow your processes as a team. And, you know, if you really just concentrate on that and get a grip on nerves, before you know it, you're, you're, you're doing okay. You know, you have a chance. You might get outplayed, but you still, we could do, you, we can do pretty good. So you have the experience of playing in that event. You have the experience from playing in the mixed doubles uh, world championships here in 2019. And now what are you going to be able to apply when you guys head to Finland? And what, what's your team going to look like when you head to Finland? Is it going to be the same team from the America's Challenge or are you going to get your, your lead back? Um, no, uh, Monica Tompkins uh, uh, will play with us again. Oh, so, fantastic. So we have the, it's the full Tompkins family <laughs> will be in Finland because her husband's also going. Um, so it will be the team that won the America's Challenge. I mean, the Silver at America's Challenge that will be in Finland. And, uh, you know, we, we expect to, once again, stay, stick to our routines and our team processes and do the best. We won't be able to take Coach Robbie Gallagher, Gallagher with us this time. Um, he was just, uh, you know, he had other commitments at the time. But we'll be able to to apply those same lessons. And the way he's been coaching us was to ensure that if we're if he's not with us, that we can actually perform just as well. And with the advantage that, you know, uh, as you say, I've played now two WCF um, events and my teammates now have one under their belt. That's kind of nerves that comes with those competitions. Like even just, it's it's kind of funny, but even just doing like the nine minute pregame practices can really throw you off as a team. Mm -hmm. So um, just knowing what that is, knowing what, what, you know, what handle you're throwing for the last shot draw, uh, what we're doing in those practices, all of that already prepares us to find a, you know, find a way through the first dance and, and carry on through 10 ends. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, just to tell you that I'm still learning, like I didn't realize that if you play 10 ends to full regulation time, (laughs) you're going to be on ice for three hours, which is exactly what happened with Brazil when I was throwing my last stones the first time with like under a minute to throw my last stone. And the last stone I threw in the second game was like with 33 seconds on the clock. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) So... Yeah, Robbie then said, yeah, that's why you have to learn to play quickly and then games really quickly. <laughs> yeah, so, so were the clock, did the clocks throw your team or was that the only time you were running running short on clock time? You know, it was actually, um, we weren't actually running uh, short. What happened is that Monica Tompkins uh, was, uh, she took on the job of, of keeping us on time. But um, we had written out what were the minimum times we needed after each end, and she thought it yeah. was great. So she just she she just kept made sure that we were at minimum times. And now we're like, maybe we should budget a little bit more <laughs> at minimum time, because you know 
so I think for sure we'll be trying to aim for a little bit more wiggle room. Yeah, I mean, those are all like tricky things to learn. I think the first time you're in a, a competition like that, the clocks, the pregame practice, the ice, like you said, is super swingy. So learning how to throw, throw a proper rotation for that. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully all that experience will carry over when you get to Finland. I, I think so. I think it will. And we're all looking forward to it. Um, and I, we will have some conversations, potentially some practice uh before we go over there, but it might be tight because, you know, holiday season's here. Uh, some of us are going back home to visit family. So you know, we'll just have to remember what we learned. <laughs> so, so do you have a team goal for uh, the world qualification event? <laughs> we have to set those yet, but I think depending on how excited each team member is, they'll, they'll be ranked differently. <laughs> I, I I prefer to stay still kind of like have some quiet humble goals, but I know my teammates, especially Estefi and Angie, they're they want to win it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I get I actually they they're great because they I get very excited with from their excitement and they they believe in in the team so much and and it, it makes me really happy to play with them. Well, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page. Um, so we're now through all the different qualification events uh so finland's in is the host nation mm-hmm. uh you're representing the america zone as team mexico and then the europeans we have estonia italy norway and turkey is the four teams that came out of the european championship mm-hmm. and then the pacific asia is south korea and then hong kong also earned the right but ryan says he saw somewhere that might not be the case Ryan? Jonathan, uh, I can report that Australia will be uh, taking the place of Team Hong Kong. And that comes from our source, uh, Jason Chang, who has let us know that Australia will take Hong Kong's place at this event. So is that breaking news? Are you breaking some news on Rocks Across the Pond? I mean, it's not exactly, it's not exactly breaking the news that, um, that, there's going to be equal pay at the Briar and the Scotties, but I guess, yes, we are breaking some news here. On right. Across the pond. All right. <laughs> hey, All right. it's a, it's important breaking news for Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, and I, I just did some actual reporting for the first time in like 10 years. <laughs> All right. Good job, man. <laughs> yeah, well, it's um, it for sure is breaking news for Team Mexico. <laughs> It's going to be a, it's a very strong field. Um, and I think it's great seeing uh, a newcomer in there. I think last year, last year, I think the, the Brazil team kind of surprised people with how they performed and they acquitted themselves very well. So I, I th- we're excited to see you guys go and, and represent the America's zone there and to see, to see fresh blood in, in one of these events. Right. Yeah, we're very excited. I know that Brazil, the Brazil women's team, I think ended up in fourth overall in the round robin. Um, I think so, so. We're very excited. I think so. Fourth or fifth, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're actually, we're, we're good friends with them. We really admire the whole team and uh, and I'm sure I'm sure there'll be battles ahead. So we're, we're excited about it. Being able to participate this and getting the dedicated ice is that going to help kind of springboard the Mexican Curling Federation and kind of what's the what do you think is going to be the future for the for the team and for the federation? 
Sure. Like what we've been talking about, because this this whole year has been a learning experience for everybody, right? Both for like Mexican Curling Federation for us, et cetera, as players. And what we're uh, we've last talked is that now we really have to look at a, a a year calendar even from now, because registration deadlines come upon us really fast. Um, there are a lot of events. Uh, as as you can tell, we're still kind of like vulnerable teams in terms of like we lose a player, then like can we scramble for a fourth? Um, we don't have fifths, <laughs> right? And so all, all of this makes it really important that we're all on board. Um, that I think what might be interesting is that since we all we now have identified several uh, women and men uh, who can play, now what what I'd be interested in seeing in the year is that how will will we do like a mix a mixed doubles play down? It could be more than just one team. And I I have a new teammate uh, for the mixed doubles, uh, Alex Sanchez, who is in the Bay Area, but then he went on and moved on me, and now he's in Phoenix. <laughs> he just moved here two two weeks ago. So there will be potential for for several teams. That's an, that'll be an interesting development during the year. Um, and then the once they have this academy, because it's going to be more like an academy, but with options for for league play also. Uh, once that ice is up and running, I believe you'll have a lot of interest um, and young players learning curling. I believe there also already a plan in place to bring some some very professional coaching into Mexico for this. Uh, so that yes, I think they will do a good job of kicking off. When exactly, of course, I can't tell you. It'll be dependent once again on permits and planning and all sorts of things. Uh, but in terms of the players who who are committed right now, we we will we are for sure going to keep on going. What's the growth potential for the Americas Zone? We now have three Latin American countries: yourselves, Brazil, Guyana, along with the U.S. and Canada. Are there other countries that could potentially? start curling programs or are we going to be at, at this five for a little bit? Do you think like what's the growth potential of the America zone? I think it, it could be huge, especially when people realize that you can start a federation um, with support with, from the world curling federation and other experts such as Chad McMullen. And then um, if there are players uh, that meet the nationality requirement or the requirement to play, you could soon enough have a mixed doubles team that goes off to a qualifying event. And depending on the area, you might have full teams pretty quickly. It hasn't been that, e that easy, as, as you can tell, even though we've, I, we've been talking about Mexican-Americans and there are a lot of um, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the United States. It hasn't been that easy. But, you know, I keep on um, promoting it. And right now in our club, I even, I dragged him out to to Arizona, actually. Um, my friend, Jose Sepulveda, he is looking for uh, his Puerto Rican uh, woman uh, curler partner to to put together a, a team and go to the qualifier. And um, he came down here because there is a, a, a Puerto Rican curler here. <laughs> And he's trying really hard wow. to convince her to play, but you know, and he's already talked to the Puerto Rican uh, authorities uh, back in back home. And so I think you know you just need some enthusiasm. There is hard work around the administrative stuff. Uh, we are fortunate, the Mexican Curling Federation, that we don't have to take care of it. But you know, 
um, there are many ways to do this. And again, like always with the generosity comes from a lot of curlers, uh, you can find people that will help you set it up. Yeah, it's interesting that um, mixed doubles seems to be what's really driving the growth in new nations over the last few years. Uh, I think Ryan posted an article that I dug up um, on the Kosovo Curling Federation, and that was kind of exactly the same pattern. A Canadian went to Kosovo, uh, it's, I think Peter Anderson's his name, yeah. and he uh, joined an NGO there. And then he'd curled in Canada as long, like lifelong curler from Canada, wanted to start curling and found a woman. And I guess together they formed the Kosovo Curling Federation and entered the world mixed that way, the mixed doubles that way. So, yeah, uh, I think a lot. And I think Nigeria had a similar route as well. So a lot of the kind of countries that have come on board in the last few years, it's been through the mixed doubles event rather than the uh, conventional four person game. Yes. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that is deliberate. Because it, it is for us uh, rookie nations the the easiest way to 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 experience this level of play and kind of my my own participation in the world's mixed doubles was to try to figure out okay fine I I've, I trained for this but what is the gap right <laughs> what is the gap mm -hmm. between um, myself and even the teams who qualify for the playoffs and then the teams who win. And that starts giving you a sense of what what you have to do to improve your level of play as well. So were you disappointed to see them go to a B division for the mixed doubles rather than just direct entry into mixed doubles worlds? Do you think that kind of hurts the the development of the of growing curling nations? Uh, you know, I, I guess uh, that had been it had been that way for a long time. So I wasn't disappointed just because I knew that this was my last chance. I, I kept on calling the the last chance worlds <laughs> because mm -hmm. it was like my last <laughs> chance to go to to worlds directly. Unless actually we put together a mixed a mixed team, I think you still can register and go as a as a rookie nation. But when you saw that we were the largest field, forty eight countries. Uh, playing and it, I mean it's hard to run an event that starts getting that big, no. Well, for me personally, sure, I would have loved it if we could just sign up and go one more time, more experience. But I mean, there is a lot of difference in in the level of play, and I'm not I'm not particularly disappointed. It's just uh, the qualifying event, for, for example, would be a good learning experience for us as is. That's fair. So did you guys basically have to choose between going to the mixed doubles qualifier and the America's Zone qualifier just based on, you know, getting time off of work or um, funding? You know, it, it was funny. I think um, because the focus of the players was on the traditional women's and men's four-person four team, I think... I think we we didn't talk in time. We since we we didn't know when the registration times were. We we didn't actually talk amongst ourselves in time to figure out that we could have sent the team possibly also to the the mixed and doubles qualifier. But also the problem was that the America's Challenge ended just as the qualifier event began. You had um, a team player actually from Brazil, Luciana Barella, who had to literally hop on a plane just after she finished her last game um, in the America's Challenge to go all the way to Scotland. And that must, I imagine, must have been tough. So I think we hope as the as more of us uh, Latin American countries uh, or rookie countries enter that we can actually fix the calendar a little bit better so that we don't have to make 
these tough choices because the difference between ourselves and say the US or Scotland or Canada is that we we it's just literally four people on each team and we have to make really tough choices around um, either just beating ourselves up to get to these events or or not going. So hopefully we'll just, uh, the calendar can improve. So now that you've been involved with this process of getting really on the ground level of starting the Mexico Curling Federation, like what, what ideas do you have? What are some things that, that you can take away from, from your experience? Um, what ideas do you have that we can use to grow the sport in non-traditional countries? You know, I think, I know that there's even some controversy about around this topic at times, but I am incredibly grateful for the coaching that we've gotten. And I actually think that even events where rookie nations are invited to participate to learn these basics that I've been talking about, even experience, um, if we're going to participate in World Curling Federation events, um, just introduce a lot of the, uh, ensuring that we have fundamentals that prepare us to participate in these events would be a very good idea. And I can imagine just how uh, over the summer I went to a forfeit camp. I can imagine having these type of events um, where maybe, you know, in my dream, you know, there's support both from Canada and U.S. to make sure that those of us who are playing in the Americas area could um, get that type of coaching and, and, and knowledge sharing and also just build relationships. You actually can do that for the WCF. They have a program called Stepping Stones. Mm-hmm. Um, you go like look up on their website, and if the national, if your national federation or a few national federations want to band together and put in a bid, the WCF will come and organize a camp with like level four coach, like top level coaches from around the world uh, to help like emerging nations um, compete. So that's actually a resource out there for a whole bunch of emerging nations. So yeah, that sounds great. Um, I, and I'm also thinking, uh, you know, I, after the, after Eveleth, um, the America's challenge, I got snowed in in Duluth <laughs> no, no, so, no. <laughs> for like three days, but it was great. Cause it was like, I, you know, went to the libraries and in, in, library in the morning and to the curling club in the afternoon, it all worked out. Um, but yeah, just to realize that there are possibilities of, uh, because of course I met a lot of sweet people at the end Duluth and they gave me practice size and, um, that there are a lot of opportunities for kind of like collegiality between especially the U.S. and Canada uh, towards Mexico and Brazil and other countries to 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 create events where where we, you know, rise to the occasion of playing against these great teams that come out of um, the U.S. and Canada. So you guys are obviously getting ready to head to Finland. Obviously it costs a lot of money to get there. I understand you guys have set up a GoFundMe page that you are trying to get um, some funding to, to help pay for, for this trip. Can you just talk about um, where people can go to contribute? I know, I think you guys also have some merchandise for sale, which looked pretty cool. I did, I did like the, the logo that you guys have for, for the Mexican Curling Federation. Yeah, that logo on the uh, that the Mexican curling curling federation created, I think it's I love it. It is beautiful because it does have the stones and the and the brushes, but in a kind of like an, an Aztec style logo, almost like mm-hmm. an Aztec calendar. So they did a great job. And so 
they've allowed us to use that logo to set up um, like a, a hoodie and t-shirt and a jacket sale. And you can find those um, on Custom Ink uh, if you're looking for the merchandise. Um, and I'll give you the link for that in a second. Um, and Or you could just, if you don't want the Curling Mexico swag, but, but you'd love to um, give us some funds, and we'd really appreciate it because it is very expensive. It's almost like $10,000 to get, just to get the team over there. Um, you can find us on GoFundMe.com, First Mexico Women's Curling Team. So if you are looking for merchandise, uh, you can go to CustomInc.com. And you can find, um, it's actually titled, The Mexico Curling Hoodies Are Back. Because uh, that's what, <laughs> <laughs> because when we did a, a fundraiser for the, the mixed doubles, um, the curling the hoodies were a hit. And they're really the perfect temperature for curling. Everybody loves it. You can find it under custom ink slash fundraising slash Mexico's first woman's curling team. Um, you can find the hoodies there. And we will, we will put those links on our website as well. And if you want to, um, and if you would like to stay updated about what's happening with the Mexican women's team, we started a Facebook page at Curlers Mexicanas. That's like Curlers Mexican with an AS at the end, Curlers Mexicanas. And we'll, you can also find the links to the fundraisers there. And then uh, if people want to follow your progress, uh, where can we, where can we find you or the, and or the Mexican Curling Federation on the uh, interwebs? If you would like to follow um, the progress of the Mexican Curling Federation in terms of their projects and plans, you can find them on Facebook also at Curling Mexico. That's with an accent on the E, but I think you can find it without the accent at Curling Mexico uh, on Facebook. And hopefully, hopefully they'll be keeping everyone up to date on your progress. And then uh, we'll also let you plug um, everything, uh, go ahead and plug everything that San Francisco Bay Area is doing to try and get dedicated ice as well. So right now, the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club, we're closer to meeting our fundraising goal, but we're still going to have to be fundraising through the construction period. The facility is again under construction, but we, we need to make ensure that we're covering um, our rent, uh, our, our rental costs uh, throughout. So if you would like to support um, the dedicated ICE project in San Francisco, you can go to the uh, website dedicatedice.com. And I just want to um, send out a big shout out already to all the people who have supported the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club in this effort. Um, a big thank you goes to the Denver Curling Club who, who you know, came out strong for us in a time of need. We were like, 14 days away from folding the entire club and um, the Denver Curling Club alongside other supporters um, allowed us to continue dreaming. <laughs> That's great. So it's great to see these other clubs kind of helping, kind of paying it forward, if you will, uh, like especially Denver and Arizona have both kind of come from arena clubs recently and they're, they're, giving time and, and uh, money to, to help other curling clubs in other areas uh, make the switch from arena ice to dedicated. Yeah, it's huge. 
I like to refer to it as graduating. And, you know, Jonathan and I, we played in the first Arena Nationals back in 2013. And it's it's great to see clubs go from competing in Arena Nationals, doing well there, and then all of a sudden you don't see them anymore. And it's because they're they're ineligible because they were able to get their own dedicated ice. So we love to see that. Yeah, we, we're going to love it when we're ineligible. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but until then, we love the arena championship too. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of women's teams that are also going to love it when you guys are ineligible for uh, the arena nationals because San Francisco Bay Area is usually either at the top of the podium or close to it. Yes, you know uh, we have we have so many competitive teams here. Like basically, we're traveling out um, to get our chops, but but people do really well. We're, we love it. <laughs> I think you play. Did you play in uh, in one of those, or have you been to multiple of the the arena championships? I went to one of them. I think it was 2014, and um, yeah, it was actually a, a new new player who convinced us to go. She's like, I want to go to the arena, arena curling, and I think our skip that time was TC Altus, uh, who's also been a mentor to to many of us playing out of the. I think she's now with the Silicon Valley Curling Club. Um, but also supportive of, of the Bay Area Curling Club. And we did pretty good, you know, for throwing a team together. And I think that year uh, we took one and two and we were the consolation bracket. So, I mean, that, did that kind of help fuel your competitive fire getting to go to, you know, a national championship event like that that was specifically for, um, for arena clubs? I think, yes, um, it it actually satisfies that competitive nature that I have, but most importantly, I think it it, it helps instruct. Um, if you're a competitive player, it helps instruct you about what you are aiming for and what type of um, what is the environment of a of a competition versus a bond spiel. It's a different feel, and if you want to keep on competing, that's when you have to make the tough decisions as a, an arena curler of how much are you going to invest a year to be flying out to to keep getting better and be a competitive player. And for the mixed doubles, for the mixed doubles um, world curling championship, we actually had the experience of coach Barry Ivy, who uh, is part of the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club, but he's a Canadian and a competitive curler for most of his life. But when he moved to the Bay Area, he actually kind of like set the blueprint for many of us of what you have to do to keep uh, improving or maintaining your level of play, and you have to travel out. And so I want to be big thanks to Coach Barry Ivy also uh, for all the support he gave us. But for many of us curlers in the Bay Area, it's people like him who have helped us be, stay competitive by setting, uh, establishing that path and and teaching us what it takes. And then the the, the final thing I want to touch on, I know we're getting late on time, um, you have a very interesting story. Obviously, you got your your start with the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club, but I know you have a very interesting story on on how you wound up in San Francisco because I know you're originally from Mexico City. Uh, just tell everyone how you wound up in San Francisco and the very serious, very important um, job that you have uh, there in San Francisco. Sure. Well, I, I would say I, I wear several hats um, outside the curling arena. <laughs> And one of them is uh, my professional life, how I make the majority of my income. And I am a lawyer by profession from Mexico. And I um, I, I went to grad school um, in 
sorry. I, I am by profession a Mexican lawyer. And the way I got to San Francisco is because I studied at Stanford Law School my graduate degrees, both my master's and my PhD. And so after another period of working in Mexico, I came back to the Bay Area to deliver my dissertation and I stayed. And so that was, um, and since then what I've become uh, is that I work as an international rule of law consultant. That means that my specialization is that I look at legal reforms in Latin America mostly because uh, laws are similar as Mexico. Um, and I travel to many countries for my job. It gives me a lot of flexibility because I'm self-employed to do other things such as curling. Um, but when I moved to San Francisco, I moved to a neighborhood which is known as the, it's been a traditional working class neighborhood of San Francisco for a hundred years or more. And it also became the, the Latino working class neighborhood um, in, in prominence in the 80s. And so when I arrived in San Francisco, I started, I'm also a creative writer, uh, mostly nonfiction creative writer. So I started writing about the neighborhood. I started writing about the neighborhood and um, I started learning about the struggles of the working class Latino populations, both generational Latino families, maybe fifth generation Nicaragu Nicaraguenses, but also recent immigrants. Uh, also the children of these immigrants who might be um, uh, youth just as, uh, who may be just as involved youth, uh, the home girls and the homeboys of the mission. And that's where my heart went in terms of like social justice causes. And after an acquaintance of mine was killed by the police, I became very much involved in accompanying families who have lost family members to a police shooting, uh, specifically the family of Alex Nieto and the family of Luis Gongorapat. Both uh, the families are, uh, though Alex was born in the US, uh, his parents are first generation immigrant and Luis's family are first generation uh, Mayan Mexicans. So I, through my kind of illegal background, what I do is that I support these families in trying to navigate the, the legal system and also just uh, what it takes to, to challenge the, the narratives of police shootings of people of color in San Francisco. So that's what I do in, in my, my free time. <laughs> I write. <laughs> I struggle with other people in, in, around social justice causes, and I curl. Yeah, very, very heavy stuff. Very important work. So, does the the the? I imagine the curling is kind of just a way to, you know, kind of a creative outlet, kind of a way to to get away from the the very serious um, issues that you have to deal with on a day to day basis. I think you have me figured out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. It was my my Wednesday curling league was the way I just like went out into a completely different circle of people. And uh, had a few drinks after throwing a few rocks, and it was really light and fun, and and you know, <laughs> and it keeps me laughing, of course. All right, so we're well, we're we're glad that you found curling, and we're glad that you're uh, helping to 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 grow and advance the sport. Uh, is there anything else that that you want to talk about just before we before we head out? I'm just very grateful for to you for allowing me to talk about all these efforts of bringing people together um, 
to have really collegial um, community environments, which is for me part of what uh, curling is about, whether it's having a club in California and a place that we can all just finally sit around <laughs> our own warm room, um, uh, or at the world level uh, of building teams, uh, you know, to to meet world-class players and, and try to do uh, the best we can possibly do. So it's, it's very exciting to me to talk about all these efforts and I could go on about other things, but yes. Oh, this has been fantastic. Uh, to hear like all the different stories you brought to us today and uh, good luck in Loya. I'll be, uh, I'll be warming the place up for you, but unfortunately our paths won't cross, but uh, <laughs> if you need uh, travel tips or there's not much to do, but if you want like advice on what to do, uh, you can just drop me a line. Sure. I will. I do need, need we do need those tips. And I think one more thing I should add, um, about how important it is for me to mix both my curling world with my uh, social justice world uh, is that I actually really, really love this idea of increasing the diversity of uh, players in curling. And I'm really excited not only about the uh, growth of Mexico curling, but also about what we'll be able to do in the Bay Area Curling Club uh, with new leagues for new players, especially youth, inner city youth, um, and all sorts of uh, people of, or, of different origins once we get our club up and running. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great part of the game. I think obviously it hasn't historically been that diverse. Primarily it's just been kind of Northern European countries and, and rural Canada where the game took off. But, um, you know, one of the things for me when we got the Oklahoma Curling Club going is that it actually brought a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds in Oklahoma City out and we've had our struggles was actually getting people from different backgrounds who normally wouldn't socialize in any way shape or form uh and i remember at one point my wife said i said what do you think of all these people and she's like these are a bunch of people who wouldn't interact with each other in any other context except the curling rank right and i think that's that's one of the great things for the about the game for me is that it does bring people together and often the only thing that ties them together is actually uh the game itself yeah and then you learned that um, that etiquette of curling, of you know, kind of like conviviality and generosity to to the opponent, carries over uh, across many borders. So I, I also appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, Adriana, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful, and uh, good luck to both you and Jonathan. Good luck to you as well. Do luck to both of you and Loya. Oh, thanks a lot, man. We'll I'll send you some updates. Thank you, and good luck, Jonathan. <laughs> Uh, thanks and good luck to you too. Gracias. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.